Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. Let me move into the teaching for today. We've been in Jeremiah since January, and we're going to continue in that series up to Easter. And we're also pairing that with looking now at the last week of Jesus's life. I'm going to start this morning by uh, sharing with you again something I shared at the very beginning of the series. This is in Jeremiah 1. Look at this. Verse 4 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And you'll see there I put the word nations in bold because that's going to be our focus for today. Um, It says there twice in Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 1 that Jeremiah is going to be a prophet to the nations. But so far, if you've been tracking with us in this series, He's only talked to the people of Judah, not to any other nations, not even the the full Israelite nation, although he uses Israel sometimes. But when he's writing, the northern kingdom has been uh, gone for over 100 years into exile to Assyria and, and lost. And he's prophesying to the two tribes left, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin that are there in Judah. And so far in what we've read, he hasn't said anything to any other nations. He said a lot about Babylon He's been saying it to Judah. But starting in chapter 46, and I'm not going to read all that to you today, but if you want to look at that, chapter 46 through 51, uh, Jeremiah turns his focus towards the nations, uh, finally at last. And, And that's what we want to focus on today, because Jeremiah thinks his primary concern is with the nations, um, preaching for the kingdom of God and the rule of Yahweh, both in Judah and and he hopes in a reconstituted Israel and throughout the region and throughout the world. Um, Throughout the book of Jeremiah, he's trying to give theological description to geopolitical realities that were going on in his day. And In general, he's saying that nations that practice injustice sow their own destruction, that that no nation is is outside of that rule. No nation is so powerful that it can avoid that fact. No nation receives special treatment, not even Israel, not even Judah. The practice of injustice is leading to self-destruction is one of the basic things that Jeremiah has to say throughout all of his prophecies in all 52 chapters. And he especially does that here in this focus when he turns towards the nations. But we're not just focusing on Jeremiah now. We're also leading up to Easter, walking with Jesus in his final week on earth. 
Last week, we paused outside of the city of Jerusalem, uh, where Jesus wept over the city, much the way Jeremiah had wept over Jerusalem many times in his prophecies as well. And today, I want us to pause with Jesus in the temple. He, he comes into the city after weeping over it, and he has the triumphal entry that we always celebrate on Palm Sunday. He rides on the donkey, and they wave the branches and sing Hosanna. And then he goes into the temple, and he clears the temple. And he sets up a different sort of scenario that had been going on. They were buying and they were selling. They were taking advantage of poor people a lot. And Jesus sends all that away and and reclaims that space as a place of worship, as a place where children can play, as a place where where people who have uh, physical maladies can, can receive healing, and a place where he sets up and does some teaching as well. And, and in that, he makes a, a juxtaposition where he echoes uh, another thing that Jeremiah said and pairs that with something that Isaiah said. So look at this. This is in Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 15. It says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. That's Jeremiah 7, 11. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to note in that story that may be different from how we typically think of it. One, Jesus didn't just declare that. You know, it, it, we read in some of the other Gospels and in our imaginations, like Jesus is driving everyone out and then he sort of yells, you know, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And then, you know, in scene. But that's not what Mark says. Mark says he, he drove out all the money changers. He, he pushed all the animals out and then he wouldn't let them re-enter. He like reclaimed the space and held the space. And then he started teaching. And in the midst of teaching an entire sermon or teaching, he, he says the two quotes that we get here in Mark and that we'll see repeated in Matthew and in Luke as well. And he doesn't leave until it's evening, right there in verse 19. When evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus spent the better part of the day in the temple teaching, and this was the main focus of his teaching, this juxtaposition between a house of prayer and a den of robbers. And I want us to pause and reflect on that today, and I hope you'll reflect on it this coming week. And what's interesting here about Jesus referencing the nations and Jeremiah referencing the nations is that Israel was always meant to introduce the world to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham receives this promise very early in Genesis that the blessing is not just for him and his, for, for his descendants, but it's for the entire world. That this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God who chooses and loves rogues and scoundrels and wanderers and people who mourn and pine after love and people who are just vagabonds uh, like Jacob was. This was part of their mission, the people of Israel's mission from the beginning. 
Now, it's not the whole purpose that God had for them. God loves Israel. Israel's not just a tool in God's working for the world, but Israel is, is loved as the firstborn among many siblings. Amen? So they were and are God's chosen people through whom God chooses to invite all people to prayer, all people to relationship with the divine based on honest conversation and honest living. So we see this. This is the other part of the quote. Look at this. This is Jeremiah 7. We read this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating now that we're walking with Jesus. It says in verse 9, will you steal and murder? Remember, Jeremiah is in the temple when he says all this. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching declares the Lord. I can't help but read that in a saucy voice because that sounds like how Jeremiah had to have said it, probably even uh, a little stronger tone than I used just then. Um, a house will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Now, as I've said before to you many times, I want, to, I want us to widen our understanding of what prayer is and what it means to live a life of prayer. Prayer is speech and action and heart posture that expresses our dependence on God, that our lives are dependent on God, and that our lives are interdependent on each other and on the well-being of creation. What it means to live a life of prayer is, 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 is all of that. Prayer is living and doing, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Uh, let us receive and give release from our debts. Let us have our daily bread as we need. This is what it means to pray, both to say those words and to live out those words and to have those words form our, our attitude and our posture towards our lives and towards our relationships and towards the world around us. Life in the house of prayer is inextricably tied to to care for the poor and care for the widows and care for the orphans and care for the immigrants. Uh, as Brueggemann says, for all those who have no standing in a predatory patriarchal economy. What it means to live a life of prayer is to say and make those commitments and then walk out those commitments. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about prayer. And this goes along with the message that Jeremiah has for us. Because what Jeremiah is saying in his address to the nations is that nations that don't practice justice, nations that don't care for the poor and the widows and the orphans and the immigrants, those nations won't survive. They will be destabilized. And if they continue in that way, if they allow and encourage greed and graft and exploitation and corruption, uh, if they allow a few people to manipulate and extort and crush everyone else, nations like that will fall. This is what Jeremiah says over and over again to all these nations, starting with Judah and then spreading out to their neighbors and then even to Babylon itself. And on one level, this is just sociological, political fact, right? The practice of injustice is the path of self-destruction for any society. 
No political power can maintain itself in such a manner because politics is about seeking justice between people who are living together. That's what it's literally about. And so what Jeremiah is doing is giving us a theological explanation of the same dynamic. You know, you can you can read a sociology report or political report, and it's explaining it on a human level. Jeremiah is explaining it on a theological level, and what he's saying is that you know this the social order only works in this way. It only works when we're moving towards justice because this is how the Creator has designed it to work. God defends the weak. God defends those who are in need of justice because that's how He's created everything to work. And if we go against that, we're working against God. If we're neglecting justice, if we're working against justice, then we're working against God and we're working against community. And all of those acts are ultimately self-negating. This is the message that Jeremiah has to the nations. It's really the message that all of the prophets have to, to all of us. This is the message of scripture. God's way is the way of justice. God's way is the way of care for the poor and the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. And if we will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, that's the direction we're going to go in. And if we refuse to go in that direction, then we're working against God and we're working against community and we're working against our own well-being. We do that to our own harm. And that works on the personal level and the sociological level because this is the theological reality. Um, you can see this in a couple of snippets from this, this message to the nations. Look at this. This is in Jeremiah 48, 7. He says, Since you trust in your deeds and riches, you too will be taken captive. And Shamash will go into exile together with his priests and officials. And then the next chapter in 49, verse 11, he tells one of the nations, look, just leave your orphans. I will keep them alive. Let your widows trust in me. You haven't cared for the people in need, so you're going to go into exile too, and I'll take care of them um, myself because you're not doing the job. This is what Yahweh looks at when he looks at the nations. How are you doing? What is your scorecard on care for those who are in need? And these oracles to the nations we find at the end of Jeremiah, um, they're all about this. And it begins and it ends with two nations that seemed like they were invincible. The first nation that Jeremiah addresses is Egypt, and the last he addresses is Babylon. And to look at them on the human level, you think, well, these, especially Babylon, but even Egypt, like these are these are invincible. They're they're too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful, they're too rich. No harm can come to them. But Jeremiah says they're doomed. They're doomed because they practice injustice. They're doomed because of their exploitation. They're doomed because of their violence. And we've seen this in our own recent history, that even nations that are large and powerful can fall apart in an instant. The Soviet Union went from being powerful to being nothing in the late 80s, early 90s. Some of us are old enough to remember that. Um, before that, Nazi Germany controlled almost all of Europe. And in less time than it took them to take over Europe, they lost everything and fell out of power. And in Jeremiah's day, the entire Middle East was under the control, the growing control of Babylon. Babylonian policy and power ruled everything. 
And as we've seen, much of his preaching was giving a theological explanation for how Yahweh was using Babylon to accomplish the divine will. And Jeremiah repeatedly encourages the people to just go along with Babylon. Look, don't resist Babylon, because if you resist Babylon, you're resisting God. This is what God is doing. God is punishing all of these nations because of all of their injustice, and he's doing that through Babylon. This is how this works. All of these nations have been exploiting uh, their own people and each other, and they've weakened themselves to such a state that they can't stand up to a power like Babylon. But in chapter 50 and 51, Jeremiah concludes all of this address to the nations by explaining that even Babylon cannot, will not escape judgment. As powerful and as, as imposing as they seem, they are going to face judgment as well because they're up to the same injustice, they're up to the same exploitation and manipulation as everyone else, and they've gone beyond everyone in terms of their violence. Look at this. This is Jeremiah 51 verse 1. This is what the Lord says. See, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon and its people. I will send foreigners to Babylon to winnow her and to devastate her land. They will oppose her on every side in the day of her disaster. Let not the archer string his bow, nor let him put on his armor. Do not spare her young men. Completely destroy her army. They will fall down slain in Babylon, fatally wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord Almighty, though their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Flee from Babylon, run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay her what she deserves. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken. Wail over her. Get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. Let us leave her and each go to our own land, for her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the heavens. Even Babylon falls. And it does. It falls to Persia uh, not long after Jeremiah prophesied this. And he can see this coming and see the hand of God moving because they're doing the same sorts of things. And it's just unsustainable for any group of people to live that way. And what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting here is that Jeremiah begins, you know, his address against the nations with Egypt, right? The dominant power before Babylon uh, Israel's old enemy, and, and also a source of, of constant temptation for Israel and for Judah to like make treaties with Egypt and 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 you know get around doing what God told them to do by making an alliance with Egypt even though they weren't supposed to. And we'll come back to this before we're done with this series. Um, but but Israel had a long and and complicated relationship with Egypt is what I'm trying to say. And then after the word against Egypt. Jeremiah gives words against the Philistines and against Moab and against Ammon and against Edom. And all of those people, groups, shared a border with Israel, with Judah, literally their neighbors all the way around. And so between the neighbors around them and Egypt, who they had this ongoing relationship with, um, 
there's the real sense here that these nations ought to have benefited spiritually from their relationship with Israel. These are the people that should have been invited to the house of prayer for all nations. Uh, The message here is that part of why these nations are receiving judgment is because their practices of injustice have mirrored the practices of injustice of Israel and of Judah. Israel has failed to be the house of prayer for all nations. They, they failed to set up that space. They've failed to set that example of making shalom and of becoming the beloved community. And so not only does Israel and Judah suffer, but all of the people around them suffer as well because Israel has not done what Yahweh told them to do and they have not been the blessing they needed to be for those around them. And I think there's a clear message for the church for us right here. We're not Israel. The United States is not Israel and the church is not Israel. I'm not saying that. Um, But we're to serve that same sort of function. We're to construct the house of prayer for the people around us. And it's no coincidence that the injustice that we see rising in our country is coming along at the same time that the church is having the most difficult time in being itself and in doing what it's supposed to do. We're not doing our part in setting the example of living lives of prayer. And our nation is suffering. And it can't go on. It won't continue. It's not sustainable the way it's going. And I think we see this echoed in what Jeremiah says in, in the middle of his address to Babylon. He has a word for the people of Israel, which I think is relevant for the people of the church. This is Jeremiah 50, starting in verse 4. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. I think that's a word for us. Have we forgotten our own resting place. We asked last week, have we forgotten the way of Shalom? Have we forgotten our own resting place? And this is one of the reasons I think the silence challenge is so important. We've got to refine our resting place. We've got to refine the way of Shalom. We've got to refine the way to becoming the beloved community. We've got to refine what it means to be a house of prayer for our lives, to be a house of prayer for all nations. So I think the parallels are are real for us here in America. Um, We are very much Babylon in this story. Okay, God has used the United States uh, to move the social and political order of the world towards justice in many instances through the years. That's true. But at the same time, the the U.S. has also practiced horrible injustice, both internationally and domestically. And, And those two things have been true alongside each other throughout history, often in the same exact moments. I think, you know, one of the 
easiest examples is the Tuskegee Airmen. The Tuskegee Airmen were fighting Nazi Germany from their base in Jim Crow, Alabama. That's us in a nutshell and always has been. Both being the gold cup that God is using to bring justice to the world and also mired in our own injustices here at home. And things have gotten precipitously worse over the last several years. You can't pretend that they haven't. They, they just have. And, you know, white nationalism is on the rise and, and trying to make itself normalized. And, and there's a real chance that, that just becomes part of our, our accepted political discourse. And that just can't be. That can't be allowed to happen. That's not okay. But we can't think that this country is too powerful or too rich or too good to fail. No nation is safe that practices injustice. No nation is safe that walks away from the way of the Lord. No nation, not Babylon, not the Roman Empire, and not the United States of America. And it's incumbent on us. It's more important than ever for us who are Christians to live our lives um, in that way that we are living a life of prayer. We have to make our lives, our congregation, into a house of prayer for all people. This is what Jesus taught in the temple that day when he made space for everyone. When he stopped the exploitation and the extortion and the selling of religious swag and made all of that go away and created space for those who had needs and for children and for everyone and for teaching. And the other thing he's quoting is not just Jeremiah, the den of robbers part, but he's also quoting Isaiah, which is the house of prayer part. And I want to read that to you because there's real hope in this passage. Look at this. This is Isaiah 56, starting in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." justice, 
the practice of justice is what leads us to creating the space to be the house of prayer for all nations. And in that passage, the prophet mentions specifically two categories of people. The foreigners living in our land, the immigrants, we might call them illegal immigrants, but anyone living in the land who's not a citizen of the land. Those are protected status in Yahweh's economy of justice. And eunuchs, those are people who don't fit into our binary gender and sexual identity roles. Okay, Those people are welcomed in and given an inheritance and given honor. If we're going to be a house of prayer for all people in our space and in our time, those are two categories of people that have to be included in what we're talking about. If we're going to follow what the prophet Isaiah has told us to do, if we're going to live into the teaching that Jesus gave that day in the temple, just a few days before he was executed. Because Jesus makes a really curious juxtaposition there, right? My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This life of exploitation, this life of, of just obscene acquisition, this life of manipulation and injustice, this is incompatible with a life of prayer. And we have to be more diligent than ever to build our lives on prayer. That our entire lives are lived creating the space of a house of prayer. Our entire lives as the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Like, like right here, right now. Let me help build it. Let your will be done. And I know your will is to care for the widows and the orphans and the poor and the immigrants and the eunuchs and everyone who doesn't fit the binaries and everyone who doesn't fit the, you know, what is it? The predatory patriarchal economy, as Brueggemann called it. Our entire lives have to be devoted to that because that's what a life of prayer looks like. That's what a life of prayer is. So what does that mean for us practically? It means as much as we are able, we lead lives that are not exploiting others, that are not manipulating others, that are not harming others. They were giving attention to those people in and around us who are in need and were not neglecting them. They were living our lives in dependence on God and in interdependence with each other and in the well-being of creation. They were tending to that nexus of relationships that I keep talking about, both in our praying, our talking praying like we usually do, and in our, our active prayer, using our hands, and in our heart attitude. That we're constantly examining ourselves and saying, you know, Lord, show me where I have blind spots. Show me where I have prejudices. Those are the, some things you'll find in your silence that'll come up and you'll be like, oh, yeah. And then deal with that, because that's how it works. And the more we can do that on the personal level, and the more we can continue growing as a congregation into being the beloved community, the more we can impact the people around us as that house of prayer for all people. And the more the church can do that, then the more we can move the needle of our country and our world towards justice.
It's the old thing Dr. King always says, you know, the, the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends toward justice. Um, people think that's nice and they also think it's inevitable. But he said in that same uh, letter to Birmingham Jail that uh, history doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability. Uh, what he means is that the moral arc of the universe is bendable towards justice when we bend it. And bending the universe towards justice is what prayer is. Okay? So that's my message for today. I hope that you'll spend some time this week just reflecting on Jesus in the temple. Just picture him with children around him and, and people with 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 crutches and, and, and mats who are, you know can't walk, or people who are blind, just kind of hovering all around, wandering around this space. Um, and, and Jesus teaching them what it means to live a life of prayer, that this is a space, that this is all God's house. It's a space to live a life of prayer and to reject living life in a den of robbers. Let's take communion. If you've got your uh, elements that you set aside earlier, let's consecrate them together now. Uh, we're the body of Christ gathered together in this moment across space and time. And we're going to consecrate these together as the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, so grab what you have to eat. I have some gluten-free flat bread. Uh, bread. <laughs> and this is the bread of heaven. As we lift this together, this is the body of Jesus. And what I want us to say today is that prayer from the Lord's Prayer. This is our daily bread. There's, there's the real sense that when we pray for our daily bread, we mean like literally sustenance to make it through the day the the money to pay the electric bill and and the car payment and all that that's true but it's also true in a spiritual sense that the body of jesus is our daily bread and we take this together this is our life renewed living into being a house of prayer for all people so take the body of jesus and say with me this is our daily bread And raise your cup or your glass. I have some jasmine tea. Um, this is the cup of love. This is the blood of Jesus shed for us, for the forgiveness of all of our sins, for the reconciliation of us with God and with each other and with creation and with our own selves. This is also the cup of forgiveness, the cup of forgiveness of all debts. And that's the other part of that, part of the Lord's Prayer in tandem. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who are in debt or who owe debts to us. So as we drink this, we're both receiving forgiveness of all our debts and we're committing ourselves to being debt forgivers. So lift up the cup and say with me, this is the forgiveness of all our debts. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask you to enlarge our understanding of what prayer is. I pray that this message would sit with us this week. And it would bring us back again mentally, once and again, to reflecting on you in the temple, saying and teaching that our lives are to be a house of prayer, 
not a den of robbers. You knew what you meant then, and you know what that means in our lives today, in each of our own particularities, and for us as a community. Show us in what ways our lives are being lived in a den of robbers, and set us free from those debts, and set us free from that systemic evil that binds us so easily. Lord, renew in our hearts prayer as speech and action and attitude. Renew in our lives the beloved community. Let us once again be the people who set the example of living lives turned towards you, turned towards each other, turn towards justice. Give us the courage and the strength to bend our universe towards your justice. I thank you for my sisters and my brothers. I pray you would keep them safe. Be with us as we mourn and grieve the difficult season we are in. Bring us through by your grace by your love. May we share that grace and love freely and widely in our lives this week. Amen. I love y'all. I will be back next week with another teaching from Jeremiah and Jesus. And I hope to see you Wednesday or talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771. All donations are tax deductible. We appreciate you listening to this message and pray the Spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today. God bless.